The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mars Hill, and we are working through the book of John. Now, today we're going to finish up John chapter 4, and then we're going to take a break from John, and we're going to talk about some foundational beliefs of the church. We're going to take six weeks to cover the five solas. I never said we were good at math. But we're going to take these next six weeks to cover these five points, and you're going to want to be here. There's going to be a lot in this that we can learn, and it's going to lay out the foundations for what we believe and what we are, uh, what we believe about salvation and the Word of God. And these are very important things to build our lives based upon truth. And so though we're going to check out of John for a little while, we're not giving you permission to take the rest of the summer off. Um, You need to come and you need to learn this. And I believe that if you're open and willing that the spirit can speak to you and we can find the truth that's supposed to come from this and we can build our lives on it. Now, last week we moved through verses 43 through 45, and we're told that Jesus returns to Galilee and that he was welcomed there. But we saw that this welcome was a little different than it first appeared. Because at first we see that they welcomed Jesus in and we were thinking, hey, this is a good thing. They've welcomed Jesus, but it turns out that they only welcomed him based on what he could do. And then Jesus goes on to talk about a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And we actually see what happened last week is actually an echo of what happened in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 verses 23 through 25 say this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so these people had seen these miracles. They had seen these signs. They saw all of what he had done at Passover, and yet there was still something missing about their belief. They believed that he could do these things because they saw them, but yet it wasn't a belief beyond the sign. Now, we also find our place back in Cana. And if you guys remember, this is where that first sign took place that we saw in the book of John, the moving, the transforming of water into wine. And so we've come back to this point. Now we're going to see these two miracles also act kind of like a bookend. We're going to see it open in Cana. We saw all of these things that happened in between. Remember meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. We see the story of Nicodemus. We see the most famous passage in all of scripture, John 3.16. And then we're going to see this closing at Cana today. Now, what a lot of commentators pick up on is that this is basically John talking about these early miracles in Jesus's ministry that aren't recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so that's why it's kind of bookended this way, but we're going to end up seeing so much more in this. We're going to see so much more in this connection if we listen to what the Spirit wants to show us through his word. So let's read our passage today. John 4, 46 through 54 says this. 
So he came again to Canaan in Galilee, where it made the water into wine. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. I ask that today we listen to you. We listen to your spirit, God. I ask that you move me out of the way and allow your word to speak. Allow your spirit to rest on us. Allow your spirit to interpret and speak to our hearts the truths of this passage. God, I ask that even though you're here, you come. Move in our lives today. Let no one leave the same. Let us all be encouraged in our faith in you. Lord, may the one who lacks saving faith today, Lord, let it be the day of their salvation. Lord, I ask that you speak to all hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think before we get started into this, that we need to ask a question. And the reason why we need to ask a question is because many people have over the years asked the question of this text. And that question is, is this the same story that we see in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, where it talks about the, the centurion that comes? And I've read all sorts of perspectives on this. I even read a really cool perspective where a guy got the stories and weaved them together and said that it was the same story and made them into a narrative. And it was really cool. It was. But I don't think these are the same stories. Um, I, don't, I can't quite reconcile them to the same. And, and why is that? Well, the reason why are the obvious differences, right? Um, we see in the story of the centurion, if you're familiar with it, he sent a servant to Jesus about healing another servant. In this story, we see the official go on his own to Jesus about healing his son. We also see that in this passage, the, the thrust of the passage, the point of the passage seems to be a little bit different also. We see that in our story that there's this growing faith that's happening, that, that there's almost this process laid out. And in the story of the centurion, it's all about the faith of the centurion that just said, you don't even have to come. My child's already healed. And so there are lots of similarities in these stories. I personally don't see them as the same. Now, the reason why it's fair for me to bring that up to you initially is that you're not going to see me begin to make these connections together. <clears throat> I'm not going to grab those stories and bring them in. Because in the way that I see this, I just don't think that they belong. And so you can find people that disagree with that, and that's okay. You can, you can take this, you can leave it, whatever. I'm letting you know my perspective on this and that I can't reconcile these, and so I won't be bringing them in together. Now, 
It's also important, I think, before we get started to talk about a sign again. If you remember back to when we started um, this story, this uh, section of the book of signs in John, we talked about Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding at Canaan. Do you guys remember that if you were here? Um, we talked about that miracle. We talked about that process. And as we talked through that, we discussed what a sign really is. And so just a real quick reminder on that this morning. Beasley Murray says this about a sign. He says, the concept of a sign is a familiar one in the Old Testament. It was used to demonstrate the truth of God's word through his prophet and thus authenticate the prophet himself. And so if we look back at the Old Testament, we can see that the purpose of a sign is to basically give authority to the message that is being shared by the messenger of God. And if we bring that into the New Testament, their understanding of a sign would have been similar. And so these signs are for the purpose of giving authority to the teachings of Jesus. Now, other commentators also grab a hold to this fact that these are not simply standalone miracles. They're not fully fulfilled in the miracle themselves, though the miracle itself is something that we can look at all on its own. But it's not all fulfilled there. What do I mean by that? I mean that it's also kind of like a parable, that there's going to be this deeper truth taught through the sign. And if we look at some of the references that we did when we were uh, talking about water to wine, um, Kent Hughes has one. He says, when John uses the word signs, he always uses it with the idea of a miracle that conveys a deeper teaching. And so there's always this thing that's deeper to it. There's something more there. Beasley Murray says this, the concept of a sign is a familiar one in the Old Testament. It's used especially of events, both normal and supernormal, that demonstrate the truth of God's word through his prophet and so authenticate the prophet himself. It also denotes events that herald things to come, especially in relation to eschatological future. As in the synoptic gospels, so in the fourth gospel, which is where we are, John, the miraculous deeds of Jesus attest that the promises relating to the kingdom of God are actualized in and through Jesus. Our evangelist goes one step further in viewing the miracles as parables of the kingdom, which comes through the total work of the Son of God. So as we study through this, remember that it is a miraculous deed, that it's a miracle, that it's a sign. It's this thing that all on its own is quite amazing. But we also need to remember that this is Jesus showing his authority, showing who he is, showing who sent him. And we're also going to see that it points to a future truth or a future event that is ultimately going to be completed and fulfilled and actualized in the greatest miracle of all time, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so remember that we are looking forward to this. Now let's take all of this and lay it on top of the purpose of the book of John. And you guys are all going to have this memorized before we finish John because we keep coming back to it. But what's the purpose of the book of John? We find it in John 20, verse 30. It says, now Jesus did many other, what? Signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. What does these refer to? Signs again, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So don't forget the purpose of these signs that are recorded in the book of John. The purpose is for us to do something with them, not just be amazed, though it's pretty incredible. Don't just look in astonishment that this thing happened, but it's supposed to draw us further. It's supposed to draw us to a place that we can believe and through believing have life in his name. So we need to understand that as we go through this. All right, we ready to go through this now verse by verse and see what's here? All right, let's go. Verse 46 says this. So he came again to Canaan, Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official son who was ill. So again, as we've already mentioned, we're at Cana where the first sign was performed. Now, a lot of commentators grab onto the fact that this is being mentioned again, that it's being mentioned a second time to point to the fact that that first sign was a historic event. It's not just allegory. There are people that want to take the miracles of Jesus and actually decrease what they actually were. They want to make them less than they were and say, no, no, these are just stories. They didn't actually happen. But what John is doing is he is putting place to this. He's putting reference to this. It's almost like putting time to this. And that's the way that we measure history is like we need to be able to put a place and a time and a face and characters. We want the full setting. And so what John is doing by reference this again is saying, hey, that wasn't just a story. This actually happened. And we're going to find out that people heard of this happening, that they knew of this happening, or at least we're going to be able to kind of see that through this passage. And so this is a real thing that happened before. Jesus actually physically changed water to wine. Now, also, there's something else that we need to see in this is that the official was from Capernaum. Now, this was probably 17, uh, 17 to 20 miles away from where Jesus was. And so this official is going to travel a distance to come and see Jesus. It's not like it is today. If I want to go 20 miles down the interstate, I can hop in my car and I can be there in 25 minutes. My wife can cover the same distance in 12 minutes. But when you look at this... That's right. Um, but when you look at this, I'm the one using the imaginary break. Um, but when you look at this, we can see that this is not just the same as it is today. It's not just a short distance. It's not like going across the street. This took effort. He actually had to go and travel either by horseback or by foot. Those are your two options. And so this 20 miles was not the way that we would think of it today. We travel more than 20 miles or something sometimes because a store is having a good sale and we'll go see what's there. We don't have to have a purpose. But in this time, 20 miles is a sizable uh, distance. <clears throat> There's something else that we need to grab here. This is really important too. This trip would have taken at best hours. Think about the context of this. What or who is the man leaving for hours to go find Jesus? his dying son. Who, who's to say that while he's gone, the son's not going to pass and the father's not going to be there? How hard would it be to leave someone in that situation, to leave a child in that situation? And this is going to show the level of faith that this man has in the signs of Jesus, that he's willing to leave a dying son to go to the only hope that he has left. There, there's nothing else. There's no one else. And so we need to see that this distance covered is going to play into the story also. We also see in the Bible that he was an official. The word that's used there is basilikos. 
Now, what this word indicates is that they are in service to the king. Well, who was the king at this time? Well, we sort of have a pseudo king in place at this time. Um, We have a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. And if that rings a bell with you, it should. This is the same guy that beheaded John the Baptist. This is the same guy that's part of the whole trial narrative uh, of Jesus that, that leads to his crucifixion. And in history, this is the same guy that marries his half-brother's ex-wife, causing all sorts of border turmoil. This is the same guy that in history, his nephew actually turns over to Roman officials because he is supposedly plotting against Rome, and he's, uh, he plans a conspiracy against the emperor Caligula. And so this is not a guy that we look back on fondly in history. He's not one of these guys that we look back and say, that was just a good fella. No, it's not that guy. And so think about this. We don't really know in this time, because all of this hasn't happened yet at this moment. We don't know at this time exactly how he would have been viewed, but we do know that it would not have been incredibly positive, that Herod still would not have been seen in a positive light. And the reason why is because he is ruling over these people as a client state of Rome. And if you guys don't know what that is, what this is, is it's where a bigger body, a bigger entity, a bigger state, if you will, has total authority over a place economically, socially, militarily. And so there's something going on here that would be oppressive. And so I find it so interesting that this woman at the well comes to Jesus, this guy, Nicodemus, who comes out of embarrassment in the middle of the night because he's afraid to get called out, comes to Jesus, that we see this official that works for, at best, a frowned-upon man come to Jesus, but yet he was rejected by his hometown, but yet he was rejected. And I think that there's something there in that. We're not going to dig into that too much, but the point of this story is, is that this man was in a desperate situation to come to Jesus. Absolute desperate situation to come to Jesus. Think about what that would be like, and it's hard for us to to understand at all what it would be like to lose a a child. And and if you have lost one, I've talked to so many people, and there's, there's no way for me to wrap my brain around that. And the reason why is because we are built to a certain extent to understand that we are going to probably lose a grandparent in our lifetime, right? Why? Because they're much older than us. We're programmed to lose a parent, in our lifetime, even though it's terribly hard, it's difficult, it, it's a rough season, we pretty much know that if we live long enough and they live long enough and, and we both make our life expectancy, that's just kind of supposed to happen, right? We are not programmed to lose a child. <clears throat> We're just not. As a matter of fact, when the Lindenberg kidnapping happened, one reporter said this. Poor old Lindy, tonight he's worth $6 million, and he would give every cent of it to have his son back. And so understand that this official is coming to Jesus out of desperation. Now, why is that so important? The reason that it's so important is because this official socially would have been higher than Jesus. And for him to come to this guy that was a carpenter, now he's a rabbi, come to him for help? That would have been just socially unheard of, socially unacceptable. And so when we see that picture, we understand the desperation that's happening here. 
And there's something else in this story that if we go through too quickly, we might miss. That Jesus is coming back to Cana and Galilee, that he is coming back to the people who rejected him. See, he was already rejected here. You know, Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his hometown, that Jesus is rejected here and yet he comes back. These are the people, the, the, the people of Nazareth, his, his hometown in Luke 4. They get mad at his teachings and take Jesus and want to chuck him off a cliff. But because it wasn't his time, Jesus just walks through the crowd and, and leaves. But these people, these are the ones who you would think would accept him and they almost despise him. But yet Jesus continues to come back. And I think that's such an amazing picture of grace and love. And why does he come back? Don't miss this. So that some may come. So that some may know him. Think about what happened on the cross. Guys, I, if you are, you know, kind of universalist in your view, kind of open theist of your view, let me tell you that that is not scripture. Every single person is not going to somehow work it out. Every single person is not somehow in the end, maybe love's going to win and they're going to accept Christ somehow. But Christ came, he died, he sacrificed, that God sent his son. Why? For the purpose that some may be saved. Understand that. Verse 47 says, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, when we look at this, it seems very proper, right? <clears throat> I mean, when we read it just like that, he went to him and asked him to come and heal his son. A lot of translations have the word begged here. And that is a proper translation, that he came and begged, that he was in continual, persistent plea. He was passionate about this. Why? Because the situation was desperate. His son was at the point of death. But this is just one of those pictures that we don't need to like... over-spiritualize it, if you will. Like the official is standing up, that he's proper, and that he's saying, sir, if you will, would you come heal my son? Guys, no. This man's a wreck. See, think about this. Think about what that would be like. Think about the passion behind this man, that he left his dying son to come to this Jewish carpenter turned rabbi to plead for his help. This is a begging of Jesus. This is an absolute desperate cry for Jesus to step into the situation and do something. Now, this verse does bring up an interesting point. And it's going to actually be put on trial through this passage. And that is the state of the man's faith. See, he travels to Jesus to heal his son. And when we look at that, if we've never studied it before, and if this is the first time we've read it, it looks like this man is already showing this amazing saving faith in Christ. But we're going to begin to tear this apart a little bit later. And we're going to see some things that would put that thought process on trial. But at bare minimum, we do see a faith of desperation. A faith of desperation. So many people have that faith. I have family members 
that I, I pray daily that the Lord will, will save them, that the Lord will, will do something miraculous. But you know what some of these people do that, that do not know him and have even spoken ill of my faith? Did you know that when something terrible happens, they're the first one to say, pray that God changes something? They, they, they pray about God changing and moving things. And that is a faith of desperation. That I think many people have a concept that there is a God, but understanding that there is a God, that there is something that is in control is not saving faith. That's simply a faith of desperation. I need something to change. I have no idea what to do. Let me go and consult a higher power. That is not saving faith. Jesus said unto him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, according to verse 48. Now, this, this seems shocking, right? This man's pouring out his heart to Jesus. Come save my son. And Jesus looks over and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It, it seems like a really negative statement from Jesus, but we need to understand in the language what's actually going on. That even though Jesus is addressing this man one-on-one, -on -one, the two yous in this verse are plural. They mean you all. And so it would be much more convenient if we had a nice Southern translation of the Bible that showed us what it's actually saying. So Jesus said to him, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. Why? Because even though he's talking to the guy, who's he addressing? Y'all. He's addressing all of you guys. Now, I've always thought like how incredible it would be to have a Southern translation of Scripture. How much fun would that be to read? It wouldn't be one to like study off of. It'd be kind of like the message, just kind of read it as a story. Um, but how cool would it be? Could you imagine? Y'all caught any fish? No, we've been here all night long. How about you throw that net on the other side? I bet you'll catch, hey, y'all watch this. Throw that net on the other side and pull in them fish. Look, that net's even breaking. I told them, y'all see that? Wouldn't that be so much fun? But see, we have it right as Southerners. We have a plural you, y'all. And so when we look at this passage, we can see that Jesus is addressing everyone around. So what has Jesus done? He's taken this situation for the purpose of teaching those around the situation. And so this isn't insensitive at all. It's the purpose of what Jesus is doing. Now, what we need to understand is that as we look through the book of John, there's a few things that seem like they keep coming up over and over because they do. And that's that idea of witness and testimony and evidences and signs and all of these things keep coming up over and over in the book of John. If you guys were here when we uh, opened the book of John, um, we talked about how this is almost like a courtroom scene where evidences are being laid out to prove the claims of who John is saying Jesus is and there's these witnesses called. But as much as that's a theme, here's the sad part. So is disbelief despite clear evidences. So even though there are clear evidences here, there's also disbelief there. And we see this throughout the book of John. The, the book of John opens with Jesus saying that he was in the world and made the world, yet the world didn't know him. John 1, 10 and 11 talks about he came into his own and his own people didn't receive him. 
In John 12, we're going to see despite countless signs, John says many still did not believe Jesus. And so there's this sad aspect, too, that, that we have all of these evidences, and yet there will be rejection. In John chapter 6, we're going to see the feeding of the 5,000. That's a familiar story, right? But do you guys remember what happens at the end of it? Look at this. Jesus leaves, goes across the sea. The people that witness the feeding, they get up and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? And they go and they follow him. They try to find him and they're wondering, trying to figure out why he left. Why? Because they were excited about the sign they saw. But then what happens? Jesus begins to teach and they said, this teaching is hard. And the Bible says that the disciples, the ones that were there that came, that they wanted to see, that they wanted to hear, that they wanted to follow, they rejected the teaching of Jesus and they left because they wanted to see the sign but rejected the teaching. And so what's happening? Jesus is addressing y'all in this situation, the people that are around the situation, those who are sign seekers in the situation. Now, what's interesting here, again, is that Jesus still performs these signs in this time. I, I find that amazing to me. And now, there are times that he refuses to, right? You remember the times in, in scriptures that it said that he didn't do any miracles there, he didn't do any signs there because of their lack of faith. And, and we see those instances. But the fact that Jesus still performs signs in the midst of unbelief is such an amazing picture of grace to me. It's so beautiful that in the midst of rejection, Christ is still working. Why? So that some may come as I said before. And so these signs aren't always presented as a negative thing. Look at John 14, 11. It says, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. So even Jesus says, hey, if you don't believe this fully, at least believe in the signs that I'm doing. At least believe that something miraculous is going on. D.A. Carson addresses this and says, we see that too much interest in the raw miracles themselves is spiritually dangerous. Miracles cannot compel genuine faith. Watch this. Jesus himself can encourage faith on that basis, though, especially amongst those too skeptical to trust his word. And so Jesus is saying this apparently negative statement to this man and to these people that unless you see, you will not believe. And he's saying it to a man that just made this journey out of faith. So again, this shows you that something else is going on here. I think the main point that's being made here is that the man was not moved to come to Jesus simply for accepting Jesus. He was moved to come to Jesus from this point of desperation. You guys see that? It, it didn't say he heard these things about Jesus, accepted um, who the people were clamoring him to be, and he went with everything just fine to Jesus. What does it say is going on here? He's in desperation, and he goes to Jesus. Again, uh, just a beautiful picture of what we're going to see fully realized here in a minute. Um, some say that what Jesus was basically saying to the crowds is this. If I did not perform miracles, you would have no interest in me. You would not believe in me. 
So he's saying that you guys are coming all about the signs, but yet there's also this aspect of some that are going to see these signs will believe. This all plays back to that John 20 passage that we keep saying. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written, but these are so that you may believe. And so the purpose of the sign is not this divine graffiti. Jesus is not coming to be the David Copperfield of your life to do these things. He's not coming to, uh, to do these things that you just want him to do. He is not your spiritual Santa Claus. The purpose of the signs are so that you can take your belief further. It's what you do with the signs that matters. And that's what John 20 continues to echo. So again, he said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I think this is Jesus completely hijacking the situation. Does everyone in this room at least kind of agree with me that Jesus already knew the outcome of this, right? So if Jesus knows the outcome of this, what is his purpose of saying, unless you see signs, you won't believe? And then this guy continues to beg and then watch what happens. He doesn't see a sign and believes because Jesus simply tells him his son's healed and he leaves. He never saw the sign. And so if Jesus already knows what's going on, what's happening, he's bringing out the faith of the man and he's teaching those around him. I have another example of this in scripture. Now, just so you know, this is going to sound terribly insensitive, even more insensitive of unless you see signs, you won't believe. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 15, starting with verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and, a, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, Gentile woman, right, came uh, from that region, came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. So what did Jesus do? He ignored her. Watch this. You want to see compassion? And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. What are the disciples are saying? This woman just keeps crying and following us. Jesus, could you, like, make her go away? Again, wow. Lots of compassion here. And he answered, Jesus said this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is she a lost sheep of the house of Israel? Nope. Gentile. Watch this. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And what is his answer? Yes, absolutely, woman. No, it's not. Watch this. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her this, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What's happening here? This seems so strange. What's Jesus doing? Who's around this situation? The disciples, what is he doing? He's showing them a picture of faith. What is he also doing? He's drawing the faith. He's building faith. It's God that gives faith anyway. So what's he doing? He is building this faith. He's hijacking the situation. He's using it for a greater message. He's using it to show a greater truth, which is the same thing that's happening in our passage. 
Verse 49 said, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and he went on his way. Like I just said, he didn't need to see to believe in the sign. But the question is, what type of belief did he have? That's going to show up a little bit later. But I do want you to see some wording here that's interesting. The word that we translate, uh, or ESV is translated as sir, is translated as Lord many, many other places. And what this is, is it's someone who is over someone else. It's someone who has authority over someone else. It is a word that's showing respect. So that's why it's translated sir here. He is, he's almost speaking up to Jesus. He's an official, but yet he's showing honor to Jesus. Why? Because of his faith in what he has heard, because of his faith in what's happened around the ministry of Jesus. And he's showing honor to Jesus in that. Notice also in that verse, I think it's great. Jesus just said, unless you see, you will not believe. Did the man say, no, 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 I'll believe you at your word? Did the man start uh, defending himself? Nope. What did he do? He kept begging. He kept begging. If we look at verse 48 and we see it as Jesus distancing himself from the situation, which many do, <clears throat> verse 49 is the man pulling himself back into Jesus. He's, he's talking about something else going on. Uh, I, he's, he, the guy knows that he's addressing everyone there. He doesn't care. What does he care about? He cares that he's in the presence of the only person that can do anything about his son. And so what does he continue to do? He continues to beg. And Jesus responds, go and your son will live. And the man does exactly what Jesus was ridiculing the crowds of not doing. He didn't see the miracle. Don't miss that. The guy did not see a miracle when Jesus said, your son is healed. He simply left in faith. <clears throat> he hadn't seen it with his eyes yet, but he yet believed. He believed in the words of Jesus. <clears throat> now, what's happening here? I think the little girl elf in the movie Santa Claus sums this up very, very well. It's not seeing is believing, <laughs> but believing is seeing. And so there's a belief before the seeing. And if you prefer something with a little more authority behind it, I mean, Hebrews 11.1 1 says the same thing. Look at this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, it, it, he hasn't seen it. He hasn't looked at it with his eyes. He doesn't see this, but yet he has faith that it's done. And look at our lives. Have any of you seen glory yet? Have any of you seen Jesus with your own eyes? Did any of you see in person the miracles that are accounted for in Scripture? Have any of you seen all of these things? And the answer is no. No one has seen the fullness of this. We will one day. And that day our faith will become sight. But until then, we hold faith to things that are not yet seen. And that is saving faith. We hold on to that. Look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them when the hour was that he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live 
and he himself believed and all his household. Wait a minute. But the guy already believed. Why does it say here that he believed? The reason why is because he believed that Jesus could do miraculous things. He, he believed that he was a guy that somehow had this power associated with him. He, he believed in the stories that he had heard. He, maybe he believed in the story of turning water to wine at the wedding of Cana. Maybe he believed those things, but he didn't believe on Jesus. And once he saw this evidence, there's something that changed. There's a nuance that changed there. We don't know his state of belief but we know that the process of this story is taking him down a path that will lead him to belief on Jesus. Remember the people of Samaria? They heard the witness of the woman at the well, right? And then they went to Jesus, then they heard Jesus' teaching, and there's a process of belief going on here. That it's not this single instance that you can necessarily um, always put your finger on. In this case, we can, but we don't know what that faith walk looked like, but we know at this point when he finally saw what Jesus said fulfilled, that he and his family believed. That he and his family believed. I think that's so important. This is not a main point but fathers, your faith matters in your home. Never forget that. Never forget that. That the faith of the father as the leader matters in the home. It's not the only means by which God can work, but I think that it's the way that it's designed. Verse 54 this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so we mentioned already this miracle of turning water to wine, and now we see this healing, and we had all of these miracles kind of shoved in the middle of these miraculous things that Christ did. What is being said here? I think there's an interesting picture here. When we studied the wedding at Cana, what did we say that wine represented? Joy. What did we say the wine represented? joy, right? The joy had run out and Jesus restored the joy. They went from sorrow to joy. And now what do we see? We see a situation that's going from death to life. We see Jesus bringing sorrow to joy and death to life. And that is still exactly what he does today. Brings our sorrow to joy and our death to life and his work. And I think that's the picture that's being shown here. So now we see the story. We see the, the history of the story. We see the narrative of the story. Now the question is always, how do we apply this? What do we take home from this? There's lots, but I'm going to hit a few things. The first thing is that we see that Jesus had power over death, that we see that Jesus had power over sickness, and by implication, he has power over our greater enemy of sin too. Guys, just as he brought death to life in this story, even though it wasn't raising from the dead, it was a sickness, it was an illness. Guys, the greatest sickness and illness that we face today in our life is sin and the effects of sin on our life. And Christ comes to take those effects away. 
and we move from sorrow to joy and we move from death to life. And so this power shown in this story, remember I told you that it's parabolic in nature, that it's going to talk about something bigger. This is that something bigger. It's so much greater now. It's eternal. It's not temporary. We've said this before, but what ultimately happened to that son? At some point he died, right? Is he still around? No, he, he would be quite an elderly man at this point, right? Uh, he's not still around. So this healing was temporary, but what Christ did on the cross, remember I told you that it's fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection? What is fulfilled there is eternal. We have been brought to death to, from death to life, and guess what? That's never gonna go away. It's eternal. It's gonna be there. I find great comfort in that. The next thing that we see is in our prayer life and the way that we expect God to move. Look at the story. Kind of a trick question. Did Jesus do what the guy wanted? Yes. Why did I say yes? The reason why? His son was healed, right? That was what he wanted, but watch this. He didn't do it in the method that the guy wanted. Y'all see that? The guy, the official, wanted Jesus to go to his house and actually place hands on his son and do whatever he did because I know that the man was frazzled at this point, didn't know if there's like magic words or something going on, but he wanted him to come to his house to heal his son. But what does Jesus do instead? He spoke. Guys, listen to me. You may think that God is not moving in your life because he's not moving the way that you think he should. Don't miss the fact that he's still moving. All of us in this room can bring testimony. If you have been on this faith walk long enough that you prayed for something and you prayed for something and, and you were seeing that this was something that God might want to do in you and that you have affirmation in this and you felt like God had changed your mind on things and you, you just didn't see God moving. And then you get 10 years down the road and look backwards and say, oh, you know what? He did do it. He did do that. It was in a different way than I thought. But he did it. And, and this is difficult for us to understand because we all think earthly. We all think temporally. Um, I was at the beach this past weekend with my family. My mom and my aunt uh, rented a, a beach house, and we all went. And when I say we all went, it was mom, stepdad, me, wife, two kids, sister, her husband, three kids, cousin Lisa, her husband, her I mean, we were there. Right? It was one of those vacations where let's all go and see if we can manage to have fun, which we did. It was awesome. But I remember one night we were sitting out and we were overlooking the water and my mom asked about someone that they knew years ago. And my aunt said, I actually saw him the other day in Wendy's. And my mom said, how's he doing? And, um, and, and actually, I, it may have been my sister and mom in this conversation. I'm trying to remember exactly who it was now. Um, but they're in this conversation and said, he's not doing well. See, his wife died of cancer and he was a healing preacher. That was, that was the word used. He was a healing preacher. Now, keep in mind, my wife, my kids, and I are the only believers in this entire house. <clears throat> and so... There, there, you can tell that there's like some awkwardness here in this. And what was my thought? If she was a believer, she got her healing. 
and it's not temporary. She'll never be sick. She'll never die. She got her healing. It was in a different way, but she got her healing. And so we need to all be aware that in the life of the believer, that God is going to move in ways sometimes differently than we anticipate, but that doesn't mean that he's not moving. It doesn't mean that he's not doing something. Remember the purpose of prayer anyway? Yeah, we're supposed to bring our petitions to him. We're supposed to make our concerns known to him. But yet prayer is somehow supposed to take our will and twist it to line it up with God's so that it no longer looks like our will. Not our will, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we need to make sure that we don't put God in a box and say that he's not moving unless it looks like this. We also need to learn from this man that we come in faith to Christ, that we take Jesus at his word. And there's some things about faith that I think we learn from this too. There's three big things. Number one is that authentic faith is not spiritual curiosity, but it's an actual commitment. See, the people of his hometown came as a result of curiosity. They wanted to see what he was doing. But did they believe? No. Why? Because they didn't commit. They couldn't accept his teaching. And so when we look at this, we see different groups of people in the book of John coming. We see the Samaritans come and accept Jesus at his word and leave accepting him. We see his own people come, see these amazing signs, and yet leave rejecting him. And so just understand that curiosity is not enough to bring salvation, that there has to be a work in that, that there has to be completion in that. And the question that this begs me to ask you is, why are you here? Do you come hoping to see a sign, hoping to see a miracle? Do you come hoping that when you leave, you get on your mobile app for your bank account and you check and somehow there's $5,000 more there? If mine had $5,000 in it at all, I said more, like they were already there. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, are you coming for those reasons? Are you coming for that? Are you coming because you feel like you want to see this grand thing and you live your whole life coming on Sundays and going to small groups and there is never any commitment to Christ? You're just coming for signs. Understand this. You are no different than the people in the Bible that rejected Christ. And guess what? There's never going to be a sign good enough for you. Why? Because what happened after Lazarus was raised from the dead? The Pharisees saw it. They heard of this. They knew of this. And then what do they do? They still call for the life of Jesus. They still want to kill him. And there's never going to be a sign enough. Number two is that authentic faith is not an emotional feeling, but an informed belief. I think this is amazing. The book of John has all these cool signs in it, right? But what does it start with? It starts with this theological prologue telling facts of who Jesus is. Guys, your faith must be built on truth. We don't get to just go out there and stamp Jesus with any old belief we want. We know who he is. We know who God is from scripture. We don't get to make up our own doctrine of God. It's there for us. And so understand that we must be based in truth, which is why we're going through this five solar series after this, to base us in the truth of the word of God. So the question that begs is, are you excited about what God can do for you, but yet reject his teaching? If so, that's consumerism. 
That's not a saving belief on him. That's simply consumerism. What can you do to make me happy? And next, the third is that authentic faith is not a single decision, but a growing dependence. You all the time bump into people. Yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, uh, what, what does your walk look like with Christ? Well, I know that I'm a Christian because when I was seven, I walked down and I shook a preacher's hand and I signed this card, which, by the way, a seven-year-old don't think is legally binding. But you sign this card and you go into the baptismal maybe the next Sunday morning or Sunday night and you get baptized and you come up and you say that you're saved. So that was, that was when I was saved. I'm saved. What does your life look like since? Oh, well, I don't, I don't know. How do you live for the Lord? And is the Holy Spirit convicting you? Are you growing in this? Are you depending on him? Well, no, but I'm saved. No, no, no. That's not salvation. Salvation is a growing dependence on the person of Christ. It's growing in him daily. That doesn't mean that you're going to be in perfection. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have these days where you just become a terribly selfish human being because we all do that. But what it's saying is that you grow in Christ, that your faith grows with him. So my question to you is, do you walk with him daily? Do you depend on him? Do you trust him daily? Or was it just something you did when you were a kid? You thought it was cool. Have you accepted? Do you have faith on Christ? Now, when we um, explore this, just a great quote that I found was a guy by the name of Mark Johnston. He said this, Jesus is not interested in satisfying crowds who want to be entertained. He's interested in sinners who feel their need and are prepared to take him at his word. <clears throat> the purpose of the book of John, what are you going to do with the son? Will you believe on him? Will you have faith in him? What are you going to do with it? Our passage again, John 4, 46 through 54. So he came again to Canaan, Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come, to, come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. <clears throat> the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Galilee. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Lord, I ask that your word rest heavy in our hearts, that our condition of faith be grown by you. God, I thank you for your grace. I love the picture that there's absolutely nothing that this official did to earn anything that was given to him. God, I thank you for the picture of faith that we believe sometimes having seen things, sometimes not. But God, we believe ultimately in you and that your promises are truth. So God, I ask that you grow that in us. 
God, I ask that you be with us as we go through our faith and let us model what this man did. He came back and shared what Christ had told him and what Christ had done with his family. And as a result, they believed. God, I ask that you prick our hearts for missions all around the world like is is leaving this week. But God, also prick our hearts for our home. Lord, that we go on mission in our house. God, I thank you for being with us in all we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.